You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Welcome and good morning. My name is uh, Derek, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church, and it is indeed good to be with you today. There are... Um, there, there is time to get a Bible if you don't have uh, access to the book of Mark. We're not going to spend a ton of time reading text. Uh, it's two verses this morning, but uh, there is a field journal on the back. We will be in the book of Mark for um, many moons, so grab, uh, grab one of those and a rubber band, and uh, uh, be sure to write your name in it. We're already starting to accumulate uh, left-behind field journals back on the lost and found table, so put your name in it so that some day down the road you can get that back to you. Um, Today's week two in our study of the Gospel of St. Mark. We call, uh, we've entitled Messiah. Um, Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one or the anointed, and um, the word is translated uh, in Greek, Christ. So when you see the word Messiah or you see Christ, those are interchangeable. It's uh, just two different uh, languages. As Pastor Jeremy mentioned last week, um, this gospel is believed to be the earliest, um, at least in written form, of the four gospels, probably written in the late 50s, early 60s um, AD, but within 20 years of Christ's ascension. And in fact, we just uh, commemorated the ascension of Christ last Thursday, um, 40 days from his uh, crucifixion and then, or resurrection, and then in next Sunday, in about um, seven days, we'll celebrate Pentecost. And uh, that is uh, when we uh, remember the Holy Spirit coming um, on the upper room on his followers. Um, it, uh, uh, Mark was also known as John Mark. We read about him in uh, Acts as well as he's referenced in several of the epistles. He was a companion to both Peter and Paul. Um, he was a missionary with Barnabas. He was also the, the founder of the church in Alexandria, Egypt. Um, in fact, that's where he was martyred. Um, he eventually died in Egypt in 68 A.D. And I kind of say some of that, or all of that, really, as context, that Mark serves as a faithful and reliable witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, his gospel account is further evidence that we have for the veracity of our faith. Because our faith, the Christian faith, is not a blind leap into a dark chasm. Our faith is based on facts and history and the evidence of transformed lives. Those who were witnesses to this, Mark was with him before his death and uh, probably as a teenager was there. It was his house where the upper room was. He was probably in the garden during Jesus' arrest. And then he would have seen Jesus afterwards, which was why he would be willing to die a martyr's death at some point. So. When we talk about these things, we're not talking about something some guy wrote thousands of years ago and does it mean anything. It's real stuff. So let's pray and then we'll jump in one more time. Lord, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Please encourage us by the good example of your servant, Mark, that we will persevere in running the race that is set before us as well. Teach us to seek you, and as we seek you, show yourself to us. We know we can't even seek you unless you show us how. And we will never find you unless you reveal yourself to us. So let us seek you by desiring you and desire you by seeking you. And let us find you by loving you 
and love you in finding you, our eternal joy through Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Amen. So our passage today picks up in the context of Jesus stepping into his public ministry, coming onto the scene. And par for the course, Mark transitions with the term immediately or the word immediately. It's always urgent and getting to the point. Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. So here we have the Spirit descending, the Father affirming, and still dripping with water from this baptism, he's now compelled to go into the desert. His humble identification with humanity's sinful condition by yielding to John's baptism for repentance, even though he's sinless, continues as he's driven into the desert by the same Holy Spirit who had just descended on him. It uh, made me think of Genesis chapter 3. This um, as our first parents were after the fall. Genesis chapter 3. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden, Adam, to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. So this spirit that had descended on Jesus is now sending him in to the wilderness. In verse 13, and he was, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 13, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So there he was for the next 40 days, alone and hungry, exposed, isolated, and enduring continuous and relentless assault by Satan himself. Our first parents were tempted in the perfection of Eden's paradise, while Christ had to endure under the conditions of our fallen state. And the strain of his trial and what he went through cannot be overstated. Mark's gospel largely leaves the question, in what way did Satan tempt Jesus unanswered? But we know the conditions were right. The modern term might be conditional or environmental triggers uh, for temptation. As I mentioned a moment ago, he was likely tired. He was alone. The Synoptic Gospels tells us that he was fasting, so uh, he was hungry. Um, and he was under the stress of launching his public ministry. These conditions were as common to him as they are to us. And frankly, it doesn't take near that kind of strain for me to be tempted. I don't need to go 40 days. It's like three hours and I'm on the verge of gluttony, right? Jesus went through that. He, was, he had all of the things aligned against him when the temptation came. Matthew and Luke both greatly expand on this incident, especially the dialogue between Jesus and uh, the devil. Matthew gives 11 verses to it, Luke 13. But I, I don't believe Mark um, uh, is... Less, is more succinct in his account because he didn't feel like repeating the other Gospels. As I mentioned, his was the earliest, and frankly, they probably borrowed from his account um, for the placement of the wilderness temptation immediately following his baptism. So the detail the other Gospel writers include is really the stuff of another day. We'll, we unpack that, and we've actually spent some time in that in our Luke, um, in the Luke series. But suffice it to say, like all human beings, Satan tempted Jesus at the heart of his identity and purpose. The questions were, who are you and why are you here? And these are the questions that ring in our ears. 
We know there's more to it, but the temptations boil down to these. Would Jesus serve himself? You can turn these, you're hungry, you can turn these rocks into bread and satisfy your own hunger. Would he be careless with his humanity? This is unprecedented. God incarnates into humanity. Would he be careless with that? Would he presume on his divinity by recklessly jumping off the top of the temple in defiance of his own mortality? Would he walk the path the Father had laid out for him even to his own harm? Satan says, there's, a, there's an option here. Just bow down and worship me. I know all nations are coming under your feet, but let's, let's bypass the way of the cross. Even with Mark's limited account, we know the temptation was an assault on Jesus' sonship. He had just been, had just seen the, the heavens split and the Father's voice say, you are my son, my beloved son. And we know it's an assault on his mission because immediately following, uh, this, this all happens immediately following his being sent out. John has just said, behold the Lamb of God. He gets baptized. Everything's starting. So we know it's coming in on these. And we know these temptations continued in Jesus' life. Um, particularly in bypassing the way of the cross. And we see this when Peter confronted Jesus when he said, this is the path I'm going to take. And Peter said, no, 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 that'll never happen. And Jesus, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He recognized that was the voice of the tempter coming at him at, the, at his, the level of his purpose. And we know he battled with it in the garden to the point of burst capillaries in his forehead. But a failure at any point changes everything and damns every one of us. You think you felt the pressure of temptation? Imagine what he endured. We know that Christ suffered the cumulative sufferings of every human being who's ever lived or ever will. But that goes for his temptation experiences as well. So fierce was the cosmic struggle that the wild animals stopped and stared and angels rushed to his aid as soon as Satan relented. That's the battle he fought and won for you and I in the wilderness. The thought occurred to me this week, we'll soon read about in Mark's gospel, that Jesus commands the demons and they obey every time. And yet, he lets this process play out. Forty days, alone, tired, no creature comforts, and only the wild animals to keep him company. Then you pile on the temptations, and he yielded to all of that because of obedience to the Spirit who had led him to this place. See, Jesus lived as he taught us to pray. He taught us to pray, your will be done. Please don't lead us into temptation. But either way, deliver us from evil. I don't want to go into this, but your will be done, and I yield to it. So help me. So why does Mark treat it this way? Why doesn't he expand on the temptation dialogue? What point is he trying to make? And I think it, I believe it has to do with Mark's focus on the grand narrative of the gospel. I think he has this in mind, this idea of creation, fall, redemption, and recreation or consummation. 
Remember verse 1. The record of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Echoes of Genesis 1, as Pastor Jeremy mentioned last week. Then the Spirit descending in verse 10 of our reading in chapter, Mark chapter 1. As we read of the Spirit descending and hovering in Genesis chapter 1. We have God speaking. All of this. The first man in the paradise of Eden is tempted and he fails. He's driven into the wilderness with the entrance to Eden barricaded by angels. Now Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted and he emerges victorious. Next week we'll see that Mark confirms Jesus' identity and purpose remained intact because we're going to skip ahead now to verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The time is now. The purpose is being accomplished. It was his purpose. He went right to work. From paradise to the wilderness, then from the wilderness, a way is made back to paradise. Where Adam failed to resist temptation, Jesus overcame Satan and was able to endure in peace. He was safe in the presence of wild animals and with angels aiding him rather than resisting him. Jesus was already reversing the curse, already engineering the redemption of mankind and making a way for our own future resurrection. I think Mark is trying to get at Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is just better. What did he want us to know? It's all about Jesus. Mark is telling us just in these first few verses, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus filled with the Spirit. Jesus is beloved by God. Jesus is guided by the Spirit in his movement and activity. Jesus is tempted by Satan at the level of his identity. Jesus endured the process, though he could have stopped it. Jesus received supernatural ministering, too. He really wasn't alone. Jesus emerged victorious, doubling down for our redemption. A new representative of the human race has, a, has, a, has emerged in stark, vivid color just in the first few verses of Mark's gospel. And this changes everything. So why did he do it? Why did Jesus endure this? Not only as a model for us, but also that, so we could learn to trust him and believe that he is who he says he is. Because unlike us, Jesus isn't tempted um, at the level of his passions. He didn't have a fallen nature. But we do know that he went through this and endured this trial to teach us, number one, this is important, we're going to come back to it. It's not sin to be tempted. If nothing else, this is recorded so that we don't collapse or wilt the first temptation that comes. It's hard because the lines get real blurry in our brains and in our hearts. Where's the line between thinking that thought and then whatever that is next that we'll, we'll get to in a minute. It's not sin to be tempted. And I think he also did this to show us where to turn when we are tempted, to Christ himself. Since he could now sympathize with us in our weakness when we are tempted. I love how the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4. 
Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast our confession. Stand firm in your faith. Believe Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence, with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace. This is what Jesus made possible. That we may receive mercy, we may receive the help, the assistance, and find grace. And one definition of grace that I love is the power and the desire to do his will, to obey him. I'm going to receive the help and assistance that I need and the energy. That's what grace is. It's the energy that I need to help in time of need. And it should also be of great comfort to us that Mark includes in his account, in the midst of Satan's treachery, the angelic forces of good ministering to him. We who are indwelled by the Spirit of God are also not left alone to resist the tempter. You're not alone. So how did Jesus do this? How did he endure it? Jesus was only and always about the Father's heart. This wasn't aspirational or mere intention on Jesus' part. His devotion didn't kick in in the heat of the moment. He was secure in the community of the Trinity from eternity past, and he was in constant community here on earth. But he was singularly focused in his passion for the Father and for others. And this made his temptation in the wilderness a mere circumstance to endure and learn through. His Father's blessing and grace and mercy helped him endure the wilderness. The blessing of God the Father and his identity as the Son of God were settled before the wilderness, not earned by how he endured the trial. And as Pastor Jeremy reminded me this week, it's the same with us. That's good news. So what about us? Are you like me? Do you ever get a little resentful about the difficulty and the trial? Ever get tired of the fight? Ever feel like you've been in the wilderness too long, wishing for more domesticated conditions? Asking, uh, why am I being tempted like this? When will it let up? Getting on, caught on this train of... James, the apostle, knows how you feel. James chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When desire, then desire, when it has conceived, that's a key word here, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. A few words from this passage are important for me, I think, to think about. One is steadfast. We have more grit than we think we do. We don't have to crumple, buckle, wither, wilt at the first sign, the first thought. The second word that jumped out at me is love, which God has promised to those who love Him. Right, that's a condition of Affection, right? 
what a powerful motivator for endurance. And then this word desire. We get enticed and lured away by our own desire. What you desire shapes your destiny. What you desire shapes your destiny. It's either going to conceive righteousness and bring forth life, or it's going to conceive death, sin, and bring forth death. So I've got a couple of definitions. We've got several of these kind of floating around, but in our context, this, these were some thoughts. One is the definition of a healthy, happy Christian life. And I believe this is one lived with our eyes fixed on Jesus, our hearts set on Jesus, and our desires burning for Jesus. Our identity, purpose, security, satisfaction, hope, joy, it's all experienced in a life reconciled to God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is a healthy, happy Christian life. All my attention and affection focused and everything that I think I need taken care of by Him through relationship with Him. So if that's that, then temptation would be the allure to find identity, purpose, security, satisfaction, hope, joy in another person or some other thing. Always rooted in um, a desire to satisfy myself. This comes in the form of inclining toward pleasures and passions and pursuits that are not God. So sin... Note the difference. Temptation is the allure toward these things that will find little hook points in where I have desires and cravings. But sin is engaging in any form of pleasure, passion, or pursuit that serves the self in the form of rebellion against God or it could be in the form of self-righteousness, whatever it is. But it's an effort to find identity and purpose and security and satisfaction and hope and joy outside of God. Repentance, then, is turning to Jesus. What I thought I could find somewhere else, right? It's turning to him to find him as my only source for identity and purpose and satisfaction and hope and joy. And to find him to be the highest form of pleasure, passion, and pursuit and purpose. So I want to spend the balance of our time thinking about those first two the healthy, happy Christian life, and the allure of temptation. As I think if we focus here, we're more often than not going to be able to avoid maybe the sin-repentance cycle. I'm glad that's there. I'm glad that balance is there. Um, I th but if, if you're anything like me, I've got the sin part down. So I want to fight a little bit. I want to win a little bit. Remember that Jesus' experience with temptation teaches us that it's not sin to be tempted. So we can take a deep breath this morning and receive this grace. The, the battle's not the sin. That's not the crime. It's a very important reference point for us as apprentices of Jesus. We don't have to take it to the sin stage every time the thought or the opportunity arises. Temptations, trials, and testing come to prove and strengthen our affections for God. They're actually agents of His grace. It's part of the process. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, 
Scripture says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. The Lord your God led you to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. Not just know as in, I wonder what's in there, but to prove, like to establish, what is, what is this? Like, is this, are you steady? Whether or not you would keep his commands. And Paul adds in 1 Corinthians, now these things happen to them as an example. So what happened to who? These are the stories in the Old Testament of the trials, what we just read in Deuteronomy. All of the Old Testament is designed to help us. It's an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. He says, so therefore let no, anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. For no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. For God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. But with the temptation, he always provides a way of escape so that you can endure it. Oswald Chambers in his book, My Outmost for His Highest, reiterates this. Temptation is not something we may escape on the front end. I would add that. It is essential to the full-orbed life of man. Beware lest you think you're tempted as no one else is tempted. What you go through is the common inheritance of the race, not something no one ever went through before. God does not save us from temptations. He succors, succors helps, aids, supports He's, uh, in the midst of them. Temptation is part of being human. And at the heart of temptation is desire, our passions, our flesh that wages war with the spirit. Satan only has three bullets in the gun. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life from 1 John 2. This is what worked on Adam and Eve in the garden. This is what worked on us, <laughs> every one of us. It's all he needs is they worked every time until Jesus until Jesus. So the key to winning the battle against temptation is a greater affection. And let me level with you on this, at this point. Filters, covenant eyes, locks on the liquor cabinet, avoiding that person or situation, deleting that social media, moving away is not going to fix your problem. You're too creative, and Satan doesn't give up. Don't get me wrong. Um, we don't need to be stupid. Uh, any or all of these things may be wise or even the right thing to do in the circumstance, but the only thing that is a sure defense is to want something more than that thing that's eating your lunch. Psychologically speaking, when a person worries or focuses on something, it actually increases the likelihood of that thing happening. You've heard the term self-fulfilling prophecy. The more you concentrate on the negative aspect of, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to think it, I'm not going to say it, I'm not going to go there, the higher the consciousness is of that thing. But the opposite is also true. The more I concentrate on the affirmative, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. 
Jesus is better. And I lean into relationship with him. And I consume his word and I cultivate an ever-increasing consciousness of God in prayer. The less likely I'm going to be victimized through enticing of lesser things. Temptation is always a shortcut. A promise of a shortcut to finding identity, purpose, security, satisfaction, hope, or joy that I'm seeking, it can only be found in him. I've been training in um, self-defense for several years now, about four years, building muscle memory for a fight that may never come. <laughs> but I'm building, and along the way, I'm building confidence, awareness, my reaction time is better, more fit, skills, growing in skills and knowledge, day after day, week after week, year after year. I don't know when, where, or if I'll ever need to call upon this training, but when it comes, I will be much more uh, readily prepared than if I hadn't. It's kind of how, how I looked at it. Just hoping it'll kick in. This was how Jesus rebuffed Satan's tempting. He was already ready. He was already ready. He was always ready. He was already prayerful. He was already steeped in the scriptures. He was already pursuing the Father and fixed on his purposes. He was already intentional about keeping it simple and distraction free. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, for the weapons of our warfare... These are the weapons of our warfare in fighting for the faith. They're not of the flesh, which means they're not of human will. They're not of human strength. They're not of human power or energy. The weapons of our warfare have divine power, he says, to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. This, this was Satan's approach with Adam and Eve. Has God really said, right? And then even with Jesus in the garden, the gospel, other gospel writers record that Satan starts quoting scripture. So he tempts, Jesus responds with the scripture because that's where he was always, constantly. And it's his approach with us. He's always going to come at us with lofty opinions and knowledge raised against God. So we do. What do we do with that? This weapon of our warfare, this divine power that can destroy strongholds, part of that process is then taking it, taking that thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. I cut it off at the pass. But I don't cut it off at the pass if I haven't been training, if I haven't been ready. And I don't learn the old, um, you know, the old overused illustration of the counterfeit. How do you spot counterfeit, right? You handle real money so often that the second a counterfeit comes in, you spot it instantly. I don't study counterfeit money, I study real money. The battle's won before it starts when you're focusing on the real thing, then all of the other False things, empty things, unfulfilling things stand out like a sore thumb. 
when we enter into trial and temptation with grit and determination and confidence, not only by resisting the thing, it's part of it, we resist the devil, he flees from us, we fight the good fight of faith, but primarily by refocusing on him, we enter into this as an opportunity to refocus. We're not just trying to survive the moment. So in this training, they know that it gets root. Uh, it kind of gets routine, and you, you start to, um, when you're sparring, you start to um, read each other. So he throws a jab, and I'll slip, or he'll throw a cross, and I'll cover, or whatever it is, right? And Because you, you're doing this back and forth 50, 100 times. So you start, you start anticipating, right? Or you're on the ground, and they're, they're in mount, and you're, you just got to get over into guard and all that kind of stuff. Well, every once in a while, or they're, we're doing gun takeaways. So they're shooting, they're pointing at you, and you're pointing at them, and you're doing all the things you got to do to get out of a situation like that. But every once in a while, they'll do this thing called a stress drill, where in the middle of the routine, and you're going back and forth, somebody comes through with a real gun with blanks and fires that weapon, and the room fills with smoke, and the sound is loud, and it's terrifying, and you have, to, you have to then react. What are you gonna do? We've been drilling and training for months and years. What are you gonna do? Or you get, you're down in guard, and somebody's, or you're down, and somebody's in mount, and you've gotta figure it out, all of a sudden, somebody grabs your legs, and then somebody else is punching the head, and this guy's still on top of you. And in that moment, what happens is what they call tunnel vision. So I've got all this training and I've got, I've got all this awareness that's happening and I kind of my, brain, my brain almost checks out as we're doing the back and forth thing. And then that loud bang or that punch to the head or whatever it is and all of a sudden whoo, everything comes in. And you, what you've been relying on almost at the subconscious level or above conscious level has to kick in or you're toast. You're not going to know what to do. And that's part of what this relationship with, cultivating this relationship with Christ is about. It's about spending so much time with him, being so enamored with him, being so trained with him as an apprentice, that he's so real and alive to you. You, you, you can almost hear the crunch of that sand under his sandal. You can almost hear the robe rustle. You can almost feel his breath. We're not just merely surviving, enduring the trial. This is an opportunity for us to share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings so that we don't brag, I got the victory in this area so that I can boast in Christ and his power. It's not me. I just spent so much time with him that when chips came down, I just, Jesus. Jesus, right there, Jesus. Not some lesser thing. Remember what we talked about earlier, temptation is the allure to find what we're looking for in some other person or some other thing rooted in myself inclining toward pleasures outside of God, self-serving. But the healthy, happy Christian life is one where my eyes are fixed on Jesus. My heart is set on Jesus. My desire is burning for Jesus. And all of the things I think I need are found 
in him because he's won for me reconciliation with the Father. Watchman Nee was an indigenous church planner in China before and after the Cultural Revolution. Eventually planted tens of thousands of churches. He was eventually imprisoned by the communist Chinese and spent the last 20 years of his life um, in prison until he died in 1972. He has a couple of books. One um, about Ephesians is wonderful. It's not very long. Um, sit and walk stand, and I commend it to you. The second one uh, that we're going to read from this morning uh, is The Normal Christian Life, where he's really unpacking the book of Romans. Have you, his quote is, have you despaired of yourself? Our trust must be in Christ alone. Happily, the wretched man, so he's referring to Romans 7 here in Paul, talking about this condition of our humanity. Happily, the wretched man does not merely deplore his wretchedness. He doesn't just feel sorry for himself. He asks a fine question, namely, who shall deliver me? Who? Because before he has looked for some thing. Now, his hope is in a person. Before, he has looked within for a solution to his problem. Now, he looks beyond himself for a savior. He no longer puts forth self-effort. All his expectation is now in another. So how did we obtain forgiveness of sins? Was it by reading and praying and almsgiving and so on? No, we look to the cross, believing in what the Lord Jesus had done. And deliverance from sin became ours on exactly the same principle. Nor is it otherwise with the question of pleasing God, and I would add, such as resisting temptation, not falling into the sin cycle. In the matter of forgiveness, we look to Christ on the cross. In the matter of deliverance from sin, and am I doing the will of God, we look to Christ in our hearts. For the one, we depend on what he has done. For the other, we depend on what he will do in us. But in regard to both, our dependence is on him alone from start to finish. He is the one who does it all. So my appeal to you this morning is not to try harder. Or do more to resist temptation. Or to seek to strengthen your will against sin. Or that you define a happy, healthy Christian life as being a condition free of temptation or trial. Rather, my appeal to you is just to see Jesus as our new representative, to find our identity in him, praying for eyes to see, not just illumination, not just, oh, that's neat information about Jesus, but that he becomes the object of my affection, my craving, and my desire. Because that's the path to victory. If I see Jesus for who he really is, nothing else matters. And then I can love purely and freely because I don't need anything from you or want anything from you. I just want to express the love of Christ through him, through me, to you. So we don't use each other anymore. So I appeal to you to see Jesus, to believe that Jesus endured what he did precisely 
for your and my restoration to God. Pray for faith to believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did what he said he was going to do. See Jesus for who he is. Believe in him. Trust him. He walked the path. He showed us. I just cling to him and the things will begin to fade away. It's often that I don't need to know more. I love this quote. It's that we need to believe more what we know. And finally, follow. Follow Jesus in this singular and unwavering affection for God and devotion to the Lord's command of love. Pray for grace. Remember the power and the desire, the energy that we need to grow in our hunger and thirst, our cravings for God, for his word, through prayer, Christian community, and the virtues of expressive love. This is how we, get, we, we, we walk with Christ in his path. This is how we see temptation as a, an experience of grace in some way that God is using to strengthen me. I don't have to take the next step. It's not automatic. Think tunnel vision. When the chips are down, what is going to come right into my focus? And fight for Jesus to be what's right there in your focus. And I beg you to do that. So that see, believe, follow is the part of the icon that you see on the, um, the backdrop here. So we can continue this theme, this idea of what, what that looks like and how that can help transform our lives. So now let's enter into this time of communion together. And remember that, um, remembering in this process that Jesus is the Messiah in his perfect work and all sufficient sacrifice for us. And we need the grace um, that this meal provides in our battle for a healthy, happy Christian life. And we need to share this common fellowship with each other as an encouragement on this path that we're on with Jesus. So let's pray one more time. Be present, be present, O Jesus, our great high priest, as you were present with your disciples and be known to us in the breaking of bread, who lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit now and forever. Amen. Our communion servers will be positioned on both sides of the platform. There is a personal station located in the back. Um, we have the, some prepackaged cups as well. There's some red liquid and a sealed wafer if you prefer that. Um, and we read in the scriptures that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take this and do it in remembrance of me. He continued, this cup is the new covenant of my, in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. We proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Amen. May the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of communion and remain with us always. Amen. You are listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.